0: Please take your Bibles and turn to Judges chapter seven. Got a long text tonight. Uh, what I'd like to do, instead of trying to read through the whole thing, is uh, to read through it as we work our way through it, uh, section by section. Chapter seven, verse one into eight, verse twenty-one. We'll begin reading in verse 1 and read down through verse 8 to begin with, and then we'll pray and then we'll get started looking at it. So hear the Word of God in Judges chapter 7, verse 1. Then Jerubbaal, that is, Gideon, and all the people who were with him rose early and encamped beside the spring of Herod. And the camp of Midian was north of them, by the hill of Morah in the valley. The Lord said to Gideon, The people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. Now therefore proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, Whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. Then 22,000 of the people returned, and 10,000 remained. And the Lord said to Gideon, The people are still too many. Take them down to the water and I will test them for you there. And anyone of whom I say to you, this one shall go with you, shall go with you. And anyone of whom I say to you, this one shall not go with you, shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water. And the Lord said to Gideon, everyone who laps the water with his tongue, as a dog laps, you shall set by himself. Likewise, everyone who kneels down to drink. And the number of those who lapped, putting their hands to their mouths, was three hundred men. But all the rest of the people knelt down to drink water. And the Lord said to Gideon, with the three hundred men who laughed, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hand and let all the others go, every man to his home. So the people took provisions of their hands and their trumpets. And he said, all the rest of Israel, every man to his tent, but retained the three hundred men. And the camp of Midian was below him. In the valley. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this evening for your word. Thank you for this book of Judges and for this passage we'll be looking at tonight. And Father, we pray that you'd give us alert minds and receptive hearts to receive what you have for us from your word. We ask it in Jesus' name, Amen. If a movie was going to be made about your life. Who would you choose? To play you. Well, if you like most people, you probably would want to pick somebody, probably inclined to pick somebody who was uh, good looking. You know, maybe a really rugged, handsome guy. Maybe a very attractive, beautiful woman. Someone who's maybe very smart. Uh, a great actor. Someone who would really make you look good. I've noticed uh, movies that are made about people, about their lives, about real life stories. Have you ever noticed this? That the actors who play them are usually much better looking than they really are in real life. But if you were going to choose, you'd probably want to choose somebody who'd make you look good. And there's a reason for that. What we want in this world is strength, not weakness. We want to look good. We want to appear competent. We want to appear successful. I remember somebody talking about planning retreats way back when I was involved in youth ministry, and he said it's easy to, to read you know, all these great ideas and to, and to not see all the failures that produced those great ideas. I mean, whoever wrote a book called Ten Retreat Ideas that Totally Bombed? And people have experienced them, but they don't write books about them we we like success. We're looking for success. We're looking for strength. God is looking for weakness. We see that in the passage here. The people that God usually chooses are not people who would make it on the big screen. At least not for the reasons that they usually do. And Judges 6 through 8 is about weakness. Now we got into chapter 6 couple weeks ago uh, when we were last in Judges, and it introduces Gideon. Uh, But as we come into seven and come into chapter eight tonight, you'll see that this theme of weakness is repeated. Let's just kind of survey it. Israel, of course, is helpless, as we saw in chapter six, before the Midianites, they keep coming in every year, ravaging the land, taking the, the crops so that we find Gideon secretly threshing out what wheat he has. Israel's helpless, they can't stop it. Gideon himself has no status. He seems to live in obscurity. Uh he responds to the Lord when the Lord comes to him and he says, You know, I'm I'm of the least family of the least tribe. Who am I? I'm some guy. Uh he fears his family, fears his townspeople. When he goes after the altar of Baal, it's done under cover of darkness. Famous story of the fleece, he's seeking additional assurance from the Lord. And then here we come into chapter 7, and we continue to see this theme of of weakness in Israel, weakness in Gideon, weakness in his army. And and so it goes, and we will continue to see it here in these uh, verses that we'll look at tonight. I get the feeling Gideon doesn't look so much like Brad Pitt as he does Woody Allen. That's probably the real Gideon, he's full of weakness. And know, that's okay. It's okay because that's exactly the person God is looking for. God doesn't need our strength. God can supply all of the strength that's necessary to accomplish what He wants done. In fact, the Lord delights to show His strength through our weakness. Now, let's take a look at it. We've read uh, chapter 7, verses 1 through 8, and the first thing we see here is that the Lord uh, insists... On weakness here, the Lord insists on weakness. This is this is a deliberate, cultivated weakness. Notice uh, we begin in verse one, Jerubbaal. That's that's the name he got after he took on uh, Baal. Where, uh, chapter six, verse thirty-two. He was called Jerubbaal. That is to say, let Baal contend with him. His father's advice: Well, if Baal's upset. Gideon tore down his altar. Let Baal deal with it. And so he gets his name Jerubal. And then he goes by that here, Jerubal. that is Gideon. All the people who were with him rose early and encamped beside the spring of Herod. The Lord has called them, uh, to go after the Midianites and of course has the fleece to make sure he really is on track here, that double, double sign of, uh, of the dry fleece, the wet fleece. And there they are. Midian is to the north of them, some distance by the hill of Morah and the valley. And the Lord comes to Gideon in verse 2. And this verse is the key verse for understanding the next chapter and a half. This is the verse. The Lord said to Gideon, The people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand. You imagine Gideon. What? Too many? You know, too, too many, it is a good thing that we want to be overpowering. We want to be overwhelming. Uh, 30,000 men, that's too many. The Lord says, you got too many people, Gideon, for me to give you a victory. Yeah, humanly speaking, it makes no sense whatsoever. Why does the Lord say that? Well, he, he explains it. There are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. you got too many people, Gideon. And the reason is, I don't want Israel starting to think that they have won their own deliverance. And so the Lord goes about with this plan to whittle down Gideon's army uh, down to an appropriate number. Verse 3. He invokes Deuteronomy 20 verse 8. The Lord says, Proclaim in the ears of the people, whoever's fearful, trembling, let him return home. And hurry away from Mount Gilead. If somebody's worried about this, if they're afraid, if they're trembling, fearful about battle, yeah, let him go on home. Give him the day off. Give him this, take, take a bye on this battle. Go home. Deuteronomy 20 verse 8 uh, says, The officer shall speak further to the people and say, Is there any man who's fearful and faint hearted? Let him go back to his house lest he make the heart of his fellows melt like his own. There was a provision there. If someone really was afraid in that situation, lest they discourage others around them. In Deuteronomy, they could go home. Well, here, it's not so much concern they would discourage others. It's just a way to try to get the army down to an appropriate size so that the Lord can give them a victory. So that's what they do. And uh, they, they, they cut it significantly. 22,000 of the people returned. About two-thirds of them go home. About one-third is left out of this army that he has. Okay, well, that's good. We're down to 10,000, Lord. Uh, how, how's that going to work for you? Verse 4, the Lord said to Gideon, too many, take them down to the water, and I'll test them for you there. And any one of whom I say, this one shall go with you, shall go with you. Uh, if I say he won't go, he won't go. And so the well-known story, Sunday school story, uh, all the, the men go down to the water, and some of them apparently scoop up water and are lapping it out of their hands. And others are kneeling down and putting their face down to the water to the drink. And so the Lord says, separate them depending on how they drink. And uh, verse 7, the Lord says, with well, the 300 men who lapped, I will save you. Give the Midianites under their hand. Let all the other uh, men go home. So that's what they do. Now we need to recognize something here. I don't know if you ever taught or heard, you know, that, that the ones who lapped, they were boy, they were they were keeping their eye out, you know. They were lapping. They were drinking water while keeping an eye out for the enemy, who, by the way, was probably several miles to the north anyway, it's not like they would see them. But the ones who knit and who knelt down, they they planted their face in the water. I mean, how vulnerable. They they couldn't see the enemy if they were attacked. Well There's nothing that supports that in the text. All this was was a a mechanism God gave for simply dividing them out. It's like saying, well, the ones who are afraid can go home. The ones who aren't, why wouldn't they be? But uh, the ones who are afraid and trembling will admit it, can go home, and the others can stay. Well, that's all this is, too. This is just a, a means of dividing the people. Only the Lord picks the much smaller group, the 300 men who lap the water out of their hands. But what's going on here? Well, the Lord is insisting on the obvious, the almost absurd weakness of Gideon's army. Because he doesn't want them to get any idea that the victory they were about to win has anything to do with them. You know, in fact, this 300, uh, the 300 that are left, uh, are, are the signs, the sign of Israel's weakness. It's not like those are the supermen and the the epitome of his strength. They're the signs of weakness. There's just 300 of these guys. Finally, the Lord's got the army to where he can use it. Just down to 300 from over 30,000. God's insistence on weakness. That's not the last time that the Lord insists on weakness to show his strength. Of course, the the well-known example in, uh, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, where the Lord gives Paul a thorn in the flesh... Whatever that is, you know, much much debated, much speculated, thorn in the flesh, and Paul wants it to be removed. Uh, Paul says that he he would boast in the revelations he's had, uh, but the Lord gives him this this thorn, this reminder, this thing that humbles him to keep him from being too elated, a messenger of Satan. To harass me. To keep me from being too elated. please with the Lord to take this thing away. Why? Because this thing apparently weakens him. Humanly speaking. Maybe it's pain. Maybe it, it hinders his ability to function. Maybe it makes it difficult for others to look at him. We don't know. But each time the Lord says no. No. No again. He says my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Paul concludes, when I'm weak, then I'm strong. Paul learned through this that his success was from the Lord. This, this headed off any, any sense of elation or pride or self-sufficiency that might come about because of the revelations that the Lord gave to him. This permanent reminder, this affliction, reminded him that in his weakness, the Lord delights to show his strength. The Lord insists on weakness there in Paul. Recently, I was reading in First Samuel, selection of David. Um, David was the youngest. That may have been his greatest weakness. He apparently physically was strong, good-looking young guy. Uh, even with that, he was at the, the tail end of the line of brothers, which uh, probably would be place him among the least likely to be selected, given given his older brothers' immaturity and strength. But you could say, well, he, he was a strong man, capable man himself. The Lord doesn't always insist on weakness in some to the degree that He does on others. Maybe not so obvious a weakness in some as He does on others. But I think all of us can think about places in our lives, uh, in who we are and what we deal with and what's around us that's difficult. You think, boy, if that was just gone, you know, if the Lord would just take this away, if the Lord would just remove this, what? Well, then He might not have the opportunity to show His strength in your weakness. Maybe the Lord's insisting on weakness in your life in that area because that's an area where He wants to show His strength. Lest Israel boast. And we're all too prone to become pretty self satisfied in the accomplishments of our lives, except where it becomes so evident that it's only the Lord that does it. So first, there's his insistence on weakness. He whittles down the army to this ridiculously low level. So humanly speaking, there's no way they can win anything. But then there's an accommodation to their weakness in verses 9 through following. That night, same night, the Lord said to him, Arise, go down against the camp, for I've given it into your hand. But if you're afraid to go down... Go down to the camp with Purah, your servant, and you shall hear what they say. And afterwards, your hands shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. So you can arise and you can go after them. I've given them to your hands. However, Gideon, if you're worried about this, you're afraid, you're concerned, uh, just go down, take Purah, your servant, go down and hear what they say. And that will encourage you. Middle of verse 11. Then he went down with Purah, his servant, to the outposts. Of course he did. (laughs) The outposts of the armed men who were in the camp, who wouldn't. And the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the people of the east lay along the valley like locusts in abundance. What do they see? They see a vast army, like a swarm of locusts. Gideon's starting to think, what did we do with my army now? (laughs) 300 men. You know, was this really God or was this indigestion? I don't know Uh, what's going on. As he sees this vast army like locusts in abundance, verse 12, and their camels were without number as the sand that is on the seashore in abundance. When Gideon came, behold, a man was telling a dream to his comrade and he said, Behold, I dreamed a dream and behold, a cake of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian and came to the tent and struck it so that it fell and turned upside down so that the tent lay flat. And his comrade answered, Well, obviously, this is no other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. God has given into his hand Midian in all the camp. Well, that's all Gideon needed to hear. As soon as Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation, he worshiped. And he heard this man, this, this vision, you know, that's fairly obscure. And the guy says, well, of course, that's, that's Gideon. You know, we're, we're doomed. Gideon just worships God. He's just so amazed, no doubt terrified by the sight of that vast army. And he hears this guy say this, and he worships God. And he returned to the camp of Israel and said, arise, for the Lord has given the host of Midian into your hand. And he divided the 300 men into three companies. And put trumpets into the hands of all of them and empty jars with torches inside the jars. And he said to them, look at me, do likewise. When I come to the outskirts of the camp, do as I do. When I blow the trumpet, I and all who are with me, then blow the trumpets also on every side of the camp and shout, For the Lord and for Gideon. That's what they do. Verse 19, Gideon and the hundred men who were with him came to the outskirts of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch. And they just set the watch. And they blew the trumpets and smashed the jars that were in their hands. And three companies blew the trumpets and broke the jars. They held in their hands the torches and in their right hands the trumpets to blow. And they cried out, A sword for the Lord and for Gideon. Every man stood in his place around the camp. And all the army, that locust-like for number army, all the army ran. They cried out and fled. When they blew the 300 trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his comrade and against all the army. And the army fled as far as beth Shetah, towards Zerera, as far as the border of abel mehola by Tabith. And the men of Israel were called out from Naphtali and from Asher, from all Manasseh, and they pursued after Midian. Then they call in reinforcements once the route was on to continue to pursuit, to chase them, to run after them. The Lord insisted on weakness. But he also knew the weakness of his servant Gideon and his already demonstrated need for reassurance that the Lord really was in this. Because the Lord knew that Gideon knew this was insanity unless the Lord worked. And so he does assure him uh, by enabling him to hear this conversation that obviously encouraged his heart uh, that he was able to go into action. And yes, they acted. But the whole thing was a ruse. You know, they, they, they sounded the trumpets. They produced these torches so suddenly by breaking the pots that the Midianite army and the Amalekites were just thrown into confusion. They thought they were under some massive attack, and they began to run, and they began to attack each other in the confusion. And uh, they eventually flee. And that's when they actually call out reinforcements from the other tribes to come and to join in the pursuit and win this, this great victory. Well, it goes on. Gideon sent messengers throughout all the hill country of Ephraim, saying, Come down against the Midianites. Capture the waters against them as far as Beth Barah, also the Jordan. So all the men of Ephraim were called out. They captured the waters as far as Beth Barah, and also the Jordan. They captured the two princes of Midian, Oreb and Zeab. Killed Oreb at the rock of Oreb, and Zeab they killed at the winepress of Zeab. And then they pursued Midian, and they brought the heads of Oreb and Zeb to Gideon across the Jordan. So the Lord insists on this weakness so that the glory is his, and it's demonstrated in, in, in Gideon's, with that assurance, worshiping God. And then the Lord uh, gives them this, this great victory. However, even as the Lord insists on this weakness, simply because we're human, simply because we're sinners, Oftentimes we aggravate the weakness by our sin, by our short-sightedness. And we unfortunately see that happen in chapter 8, verses 1 through 21. The Lord insists on weakness. He accommodates the weakness in Gideon. Uh, But then here we just see where their own nature just actually makes it worse, makes them weaker than they otherwise would have been. Uh look at what happens with Ephraim in verses 1 through 3. Then the men of Ephraim said to him, What is this you've done to us not to call us when you went to fight with Midian? And they accused him fiercely. They were insulted that he didn't get them there first. Now they get called in a little bit later. All the men of Ephraim were called, verse 24. They said, Well, well gives, you, you didn't you didn't come to us first to get us in on this to start with. Well, Gideon kind of Shows a little bit of weakness here, or maybe it's diplomacy, maybe it's tact, maybe it's just weakness. Verse two, what have I done in comparison with you, Ephraim? Is not the gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim better than the whole grape harvest of Abiazar? Remember that's where he's from, Abiezer Is you know, isn't just the final the, what's left behind after the harvest is over in Ephraim. Isn't that, isn't that bastard? Isn't the whole harvest? You know. He's kind of buttering them up a little bit. He's shrewd. It's it's a good proverb. God has given into your hands the princes of Midian or Ebenzeeb. What have I been able to do in comparison with you? And their anger against him subsided when he said this. Uh, He could have just stood him down. Look, God didn't invite you to this party. But he doesn't. He's very diplomatic, very tactful, very Woody Allen-like. Well, then they have this whole situation that develops in the rest of the chapter with Succoth and Penuel. Gideon came to the Jordan and crossed over. Remember, they're pursuing. He and the 300 men who were with him, exhausted, yet pursuing. So he said to the men of Succoth, Please give loaves of bread to the people who follow me, for they're exhausted, and I'm pursuing after Zeba and Zalmunna, the kings of Midian. And the officials of Succoth said, are the hands of Ziba and Zalmunna already in your hand, that we should give bread to your army? So Gideon said, well then, when the Lord has given Ziba and Zalmunna into my hand, I'll flail your flesh with the thorns of the wilderness and with briars. Now what they're asking is, well, you know, what if you fail? What if we help you and you fail and they come after us? Maybe they're being prudent. Maybe they're being spineless. Sometimes it can be difficult to tell the difference. Gideon obviously didn't think too much of their prudence. And he continues. Verse 8, from there he went up to Penuel and spoke to them in the same way. The men of Penuel answered him as the men of Succoth had answered. And he said to the men of Penuel, when I come down again in peace, I'll break down this tower. So they put a position. They have to choose who they think is going to come to power, who they, who's going to win before it happens. And again, they, they respond the way... Uh, the way the earlier group did is kind of this sort of, well, you know, until you have them in hand, we're not willing to take the risk. And uh, Gideon expresses his displeasure. Well, verse 10, Zebas and were in Karkor with their army, about 15,000 men, all who were left of the army of the people of the east, where there had fallen 120,000 men who drew the sword. So you can do the math there. Obviously, the 300 were fairly outnumbered. And Gideon went up by the way of the tent dwellers east of Noba and Jagdabah and answered the, uh, attacked the army, for the army felt secure. Zeba and Zalmunna fled, and he pursued them and captured the two kings of Midian, Zebah and Zalmunna, and he threw all the army into a panic. Then Gideon, the son of Joash, returned from the battle by the ascent of Harris, and he captured a young man of Succoth and questioned him. And he wrote down for him, for Gideon, the officials and elders of Succoth, 77 men he came to the men of Succoth and said, Behold, Ziba and Zalmunna, about whom you taunted me, saying, Are the hands of Zeba and Zalmunna already in your hand, that we should give bread to your men who are exhausted? And he took the elders of the city, he took thorns of the wilderness with bri- and briars, and with them taught the men of Succoth a lesson. They chose poorly. And he broke down the tower of Penuel, just like he said he would, and killed the men of the city. Maybe not... Uh, maybe not the thing to do, but uh, he had threatened to teach them a lesson for their lack of support. Again, they were refusing to throw their lot in with him, their support in for him, and he made them pay for it. Well, finally it wraps up, verses 18 through 20, through uh, 21. He said to Zeba and Salmon, Where are the men whom you killed at Tabor? They Answered, As you are, so were they. Every one of them resembled the son of a king. And he said, they were my brothers, sons of my mother. As the Lord lives, if you had saved them alive, I would not kill you. So he said to Jether, his firstborn, rise, kill them. But the young man didn't draw a sword, for he was afraid, because he was still a young man. Then Ziba and Zalmunna said, rise yourself and fall upon us, for as the man is, so is his strength. Gideon arose and killed Ziba and Zalmunna, and he took the crescent ornaments that were on the necks of their camels spoils of the victors. You see in Israel this, this, this devised, this intentional weakness in whittling down the army. That's a good weakness. That's a weakness God put there so that His strength would be seen. But you also see just the weakness of human nature. Some would call it prudence. I think from the standpoint of judges, we're to see that as a lack of faith, a lack of willingness to support their countrymen, a lack of willingness to support the deliverer that God had raised up. Yeah, they were taking a risk. They were taking a chance. The outcome was not known, but they preferred to play it safe instead of stepping out in faith and trusting that Gideon would, in fact, capture these men. So we need to recognize that oftentimes our our unbelief, our sin, tends to aggravate weakness. Uh, we 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 want our weakness to be those things that God has put into our lives, not our own uh, things of our own making through our lack of faith or through sin, uh, other things that we might do that are debilitating. Although that's there too, and that's real. And the Lord knows that, and He can He can work through that. He can work in spite of that. And so we give Him the praise. As we look at this chapter, uh, they won the victory. But they won it in such a way, by God's design, that the glory was His. That Israel could not take credit for what they had done. Lest Israel boast over me. But you know, as we look at that, not just in terms of our life circumstances, but in a much bigger picture, we see the gospel. That God has come to us, that he has done for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Uh, It was by grace that the Lord raised up Gideon, that he used him in his weakness, in Israel's weakness, the weakness of his army, to bring about this freedom, this deliverance for them. Well, it's also by grace that we have been saved through faith. And uh, certainly not by our own works, as Paul says, so that no one can boast. Whether it's a salvation in this world or salvation to the world to come, we recognize that it is by God's grace and it is all to God's glory. Lest Israel boast. We're going to boast, let us boast in the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank You for Your power. Thank You, Father, for how You were able to show Your strength in our weakness. And it's all the more obviously Yours. Lord, we pray that uh, as as believers, that You would do that. Use, Yes, use those strengths You've given us, Lord, but use our weaknesses. uh, Those things that we would see as as debilitating, as as harmful, as holding us back, uh, to show Your strength in those areas. Father, we also pray that you would show your strength in us as a church. Uh, Lord, we are are not the most numerous. We're not the biggest, the flashiest. Uh, you, Lord, we I pray that in our weakness, you would show your strength. You would show your power, so that it would be very evident, Lord. It is not that uh, what good is accomplished is not of human making, not a matter of our strength or our resources or our abilities but of the power of God and all to the glory of God. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.